This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. Welcome to Connected to Chicago. Mayor Lori Lightfoot has tapped the head of schools in San Antonio, Texas, to be the next Chicago Public Schools CEO. Pedro Martinez was raised in Chicago and steps in at a time when CPS is struggling with a lot of things, the COVID pandemic, and a teacher's union that seems one uh, to be running things these days. Our guest is Paul Vallis today, no stranger to the ins and outs at CPS because he led the system from 1995 through 2001. Thanks for being here today. Today, Paul. Thanks for having me. As Pedro Martinez preps to take the reins at the end of this month, what is his biggest challenge? Is it guiding CPS through this COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, there's a number of challenges. Let me kind of take them in rank order. Obviously, the first one is keeping schools open. Uh, it's clear that the CTU is looking for almost any excuse to shut schools down again. You know, f- uh, from the beginning of this year, they've been arguing that schools are still not safe. Uh, they spent the, the better part of this, uh, uh, of these many, 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 many COVID months, uh, um, making the argument that uh, coming to school was a life or death decision. And let's face it, uh, it's, uh, you've seen it in the very poor uh, enrollment uh, uh, to the start of the school year. So getting uh, getting families comfortable with having their kids um, coming to school and participating in in-school instruction, uh, keeping the kids in school for the year, resisting the pressure that they're going to get, particularly if there continues to be a spike in the Delta variant, to uh, shut schools down again and to go full remote, that's going to be his biggest challenge. And let me make a point about the Delta variant. I mean, uh, at the end of the day, uh, children are minimally at risk, even with the Delta variant. And while the Delta variant is more contagious than the previous variant, there's no evidence that schools are becoming like uh, uh, um, uh, virus spreaders. And there's uh, uh, and there's um, absolutely no evidence that the uh, that COVID is having uh, that the Delta variant is variant is having a worse effect on children than the uh, than the uh, uh, original virus. So, uh, you know, it's schools can be open safely, and it's critically important that uh, Pedro get schools uh, get schools reopened. A couple other things too is is uh, there's been a huge exodus of school children from the district. The district has lost enrollment for 18 consecutive years, including, I believe, a, a record loss of enrollment of 15,000 last year. Uh, and uh, and there are almost as many kids leaving, uh, perhaps still attending schools on paper, but in effect not showing up at school. So getting these schools reengaged, getting these kids re-enrolled, keeping them in school is going to be a critical task for the next superintendent. And, and finally, uh, it's really going to be critical that, that he spend time uh, they have got to repair the damage done from uh, students being out of school or, uh, for almost 12 consecutive months. There was no uh, open campuses, no in-school instruction for 12 consecutive months. And it's critically important that they make up the lost instructional time. 
So finding a way to increase instructional time, whether it's a longer school day and a longer school year, is absolutely critical. He added 30 days to the school year in San Antonio to make up for lost instructional time, which was uh, quite an achievement. Good luck trying to get the CTU to accommodate them. So right. I think those are the three major issues. Yeah, so on your last point there, I mean, what's that conversation going to look like uh, between the teachers' union and Martinez? I, I I don't know what the bargaining agreement says, but I, I would assume uh, it, it sets the dates or, or the t- length of a, a school day. How, so w- what does Martinez have to do then to convince the teachers' union that this has got to happen for the sake of the kids? Well, if he's going to push for a longer school day and longer school year, he's got to get the cooperation of the union or, or he just won't get it. And as you know, the governor passed, uh, signed the law that, in effect, gives the teachers union unlimited uh, power to strike for virtually any reason uh, because, because there were restrictions on their ability to strike. Now they can strike over the length of the school day, length of the school year. They could strike if they don't think the health care uh, protocols are adequate enough. So they literally have carte blanche. So uh, it, it'll be a tough negotiation. The CQ has resisted lengthening the school day. In fact, they've been trying to roll back the very modest increase in the school day that Rahm Emanuel negotiated in the last teacher contract. So I don't anticipate they're going to get, um, he's going to get a lot of, uh, he's, he's going to get a lot of cooperation from the teachers union if he attempts to do that. You talked about an exodus of kids from uh, CPS, the falling enrollments. Uh, Martinez took some heat in Texas uh, for partnerships with charter schools. My understanding is that his hands were kind of tied because of a newly enacted state law there. Um, and we know that the CTU doesn't necessarily like charter schools because it essentially, you know, uh, lessens, uh, lessens the number of uh, union teachers in a lot of cases. Uh, Martinez has said he isn't against charters. Um, what is that battle going to look like? <laughs> well, you know, there is going to be no battle because the CTU in the last contract entered into an assigned side a side agreement with the um, with the school district that basically said that the number of charters will be capped and charter enrollment will be kept. So the CTU literally has been working really hard to cap, limit, if not over the long term, destroy even public education choice. And let me point out for the layman out there, charter schools are public schools. They're just public schools that are, are not subject to the, uh, to the Chicago Teachers Union contract. That's the big issue. So the, their school days can be longer. Their school year can be longer. Um, um, there's much greater autonomy at the local school level for hiring and retaining employees. So, uh, you know, th- these are public schools. And for, for those who argue that, oh, my God, is taking money from, um, from traditional public schools, it's not. The money follows the kids. The money, in fact, follows the children. So if charter school enrollment rises, they're going to get more funding because the money follows the kids. So, so clearly he's not going to be able to expand charters. This state has really become anti-charter. This state has become anti-choice, unlike our neighbor, Indiana, who incidentally spends on the average about 50 percent less than Illinois. Yet on all academic, by all academic comparisons, their schools do better. And in Indiana, not only is there strong support for charter schools, in fact, in Indianapolis, the community can demand if their school is failing that the school district uh, select um, with their input a new and better model. No displacement of kids, just a better school. Uh, but also in, Indian, in, in Indiana, 90% of the parents 
are income eligible to participate in the tuition reimbursement program. So if poor parents want to send their kids to parochial private schools, they can receive tuition support. So we're way behind the times. We spend much more money on schools than um, we spend anywhere from 24 to 50% more per school than all of our surrounding states. And Chicago alone spends $2,000 more per pupil than the state average. In fact, the, the Chicago Public School budget this year of $9.3 billion is the equivalent to $27,000 per student. So why we don't have a better school system because of that and why we don't have more quality school choices is beyond me. It's just a travesty that we should be uh, expending that much of the taxpayers, of the taxpayers' wealth, so to speak, and getting so few high-quality school choices. Well, what about the the school choice question that parents continue to raise, um, you know, whether it's a vouchers or something else? Is this something that Martinez will probably duck or, for back of a lot of words, be, you know, mute and deaf to? You know, uh, uh, he won't take on that issue because, they're, they're, first of all, he's not – the mayor herself, if she wanted to create a Indiana-style school choice system – could actually do it with the funding and the budget that, that she controls. And, you know, even though the teachers union got legislation passed that will also almost give them de facto control of the school system, but because by 2027, you're going to have this massive school board. What is it? 21, 22 members are going to be elected. So the union's going to work overtime to, to, to get uh, union representation on that school board. But even with that, the, you know, uh, even even uh, given the fact that there there are a few more years under which the mayor will control the school board, I don't see the schools reprogramming any of their dollars to really provide any sort of financial support for poor families who uh, who want to send their kids to parochial and private schools. This is, it's just not going to happen. In contrast, Indianapolis or 17 other states who, since COVID, since COVID hit has ex- expanded uh, school choice uh, uh, as uh, school choices. They've, they're, they're providing direct funding to uh, families, 17 additional states to families, poor families who send their kids to parochial and private schools. But I don't see anything. The, the president administration, both at the city level and the state level, is too dominated by, by the teacher unions statewide to do anything to expand school choice. We're talking with Paul Vallis, former CPS CEO who led the district from 1995 through 2001. And we're talking about the incoming uh, CEO, Pedro Martinez. He's never been a classroom teacher or a school principal. Paul, does that hurt him? (laughs) No, no, it doesn't. And I'll tell you why, because... uh... You know, again, when you have a district that large, you really need somebody at the district level who, first of all, has a vision for the for the uh, for the schools, uh, for the district, but then also has the financial and management skills to manage a district that has a nine point three billion dollar budget. And let me point out that although he's never been a classroom teacher, uh, he has been working in the schools for decades now. Of course, he got to start. Uh, working for the, in the Catholic schools, I think it was Catholic Charities or the Big Shoulders Program, one of the big foundations. And then, of course, he went to work as both a budget analyst and later budget director and CFO of the Chicago Post Schools uh, uh, for many years before becoming a big city superintendent. He said, I think uh, he, he had uh, he's 
I think uh, San Antonio was his third district, and he's had success in those districts. You know, when, that's why they call the position CEO. It's it's incumbent upon him to assemble a really high quality uh, team, uh, a high quality instructional leadership team to kind of drive instruction. While well, he focuses on the broader issue of not only articulating the vision, but uh, making sure that you can construct a budget that and and create an oper- uh, an operational structure that can implement the vision. That's why this system is set up the way it is. But he has extensive experience. I mean, he's worked for decades in the public schools, worked for well over a decade in the Chicago public schools, uh, uh, not to mention managing three districts himself, including the last one, San Antonio. So he becomes well, he's, he's well prepared for the district. And, you know, he, he was a student uh, in the Chicago public schools. Uh, um, he's one of 11 siblings, um, Mexican immigrants. I mean, he really has a storybook. Uh, he's had a storybook career when you really think about uh, what he's been able to accomplish. One of the things that he did get a lot of high praise from there in San Antonio was raising um, the state education ratings uh, in that district right. from, I think, an F to a B. Uh, pretty good. Uh, but that's yeah, a that's much smaller good. district, right, than, than CPS? Yeah, but, you know, there aren't a lot of, like, mega, mega districts. So going from a district of 50,000 to a district this size, uh, you know, believe me, I, I you know, First of all, I think the poverty rates are very comparable, although San Antonio has a much larger Latino population than black population. Uh, but, of course, the Latino population in, in Chicago public schools right now is the, is the I believe, the largest. Um, uh, they constitute the largest portion of the district. But, uh, you know, but in terms of social economic, it's a very similar. And, again, this is also a guy who was CFO for the district. I don't know how many years it was six years, seven years. So clearly for, um, you know, all through the, at the turn of, uh, you know, this past decade, he's, he, he has spent uh, extensive time managing multi-billion dollar budgets. Uh, during the uh, Duncan administration, he was CFO for a number of years. So he's very familiar with the inner workings of the district, the setting of priorities, the how to construct budgets that uh, obviously are, are school improvement vehicles. So I think he's very well equipped. It's also good to have somebody who really at the helm, who really understands the numbers and understands the numbers the Chicago numbers, once again, harking on his experience in the Chicago public schools. So I think he's well-equipped to hit the ground running. So if I understand you correctly, he has the potential to maybe uh, in- increase graduation rates, increase uh, uh, how school performance is doing? Well, you know, one would hope that he would. Because he understands budget and he's got very good instincts on what constitutes uh, a high-quality uh, education, again, he, as you pointed out, he... He had success improving the San Antonio schools, improving test scores. You don't go from an F to a B district and, and not have a significant improvement in academic performance. Well, that understanding of what constitutes quality educational services and the ability to figure out how to financial services, I think that's an invaluable tool. Far too often we have individuals running schools who, you know, they may be great educators, but they, I mean, but they're not necessarily really effective uh, budgeteers, or, or for that matter, they've they've never managed large uh, uh, educational organizations. So those requisite skills are going to be very important. So I think he's got the ability to do that. The district certainly has the financial resources to do it. 
once again, I mean, just do, do your own math. $9.3 billion budget. That doesn't count all the new COVID money that's available uh, for a student population of 340,000. And incidentally, that population was last year's number. It's probably going to be much lower. So they're literally spending $27,000 per kid. The 54% of the property taxes go to Chicago Public Schools. 24% of the state funding for K-12 goes to Chicago Public Schools. 40% of all the federal money, including the COVID money, for schools uh, that come to Illinois go to the Chicago Public Schools. That's an, I mean, that's a massive amount of money. So there's no reason why somebody who understands um, what constitutes quality education and also understands the finances. I mean, uh, there's no reason why he can't be successful, despite the fact that he's going <laughs> to obviously have to go toe-to-toe with the Chicago Teachers Union because they're going to resist any effort uh, 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 to uh, uh, increase their their workload or to, you know, or to do things at the local school level that impacts their membership. He, his biggest challenge is going to be trying to reconstitute these chronically failing neighborhood schools. The union is going to be very aggressive resisting any attempts he makes to make changes at the local school level that affect their rank and file members. So that's going to be his greatest challenge, I think. Well, and that goes back to the whole someday soon working with this elected school board. His hands are basically going to be tied if he wants to implement uh, something new and, and they just simply don't want to go along with it, right? Yeah, yes, absolutely right. But uh, although, you know, the the uh, on the bright side, there is a window because I think the full conversion of the board, they're going to like a, what is it, a 21-member board? I mean, it's full, be the largest board in, in the nation in this elected school board. Uh, but it's, it's not going to happen for a couple of years, and there's going to be a gradual transition. So there is that window over the next two to three years to uh, – to hopefully make institutional changes that will transform the district so that when the new elected school board is created, uh, the system will be much different and the system will be much better. That said and done, uh, uh, Pritzker's uh, uh, ill-advised signing of the, the bill basically giving the teachers, Chicago Teachers Union, the strike for virtually any reason, will give the union a real powerful tool to resist uh, any any efforts on Martinez's part to to do the type of aggressive reforms that might impact their members. So it's going to be a battle royale. But he's worked in the system before. He knows the terrain. No one's going to have to show him where to park. <laughs> you know, he's, he's not going to. Hopefully, he'll be able to head, hit the ground running. And I'm I'm sure he he's got a good working knowledge of some of the talented. I'm, I'm sure there there are a lot of talented people who uh, remain in the system uh, who were who were there during his tenure. So I think I think he'll do well. It, it, a lot of it depends on the mayor. The mayor still controls the school board and will do so for the, the next few years. So she's got to back him. She's got to give him more backing than she gave to to uh, uh, Superintendent, to CEO Jackson, who on three occasions was ready to reopen schools. And because of City Hall's interference and City Hall surrendered to the unions, failed to reopen schools. So we literally lost an entire year um, uh, because the mayor's office caved into union threats. And this was even before the Pritzker, Pritzker signed the bill <laughs> giving the teachers union right enhanced and expanded uh, uh, right to strike. So it's going to be important for the mayor to support him. Miguel de Valle, who's president, who's president 
of the uh, of the uh, school board currently, the mayor's appointed president. He's going to end up being his strongest supporter because I know Miguel. I, I know how proud Miguel has to be about uh, uh, a uh, uh, an immigrant from Mexico, self-made man, success at CPS, huge family. I think three of his uh, 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 siblings are teachers, something like that. I mean, he's got to be proud. So I. I I think the school board is going to be strongly supportive of him and give him, try to give him the support. But it's all really going to depend on the mayor's willingness to stand up to the Chicago Teachers Union. And my thanks to Paul Vallis for being on the program. Up next, our Reporter Roundtable. This is Connected to Chicago with Bill Cameron. A look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. Time now for the Reporter Roundtable, and we're joined by Sun-Times Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief Lynn Sweet, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. I guess uh, the governor released a, a letter uh, to some lawmakers and others talking about uh, Afghan refugees and what the state is doing to welcome them in. Uh, Greg, you did a piece on this, uh, I believe, in, in Cranes. What is uh, the latest? What do the numbers look like? Well, the latest is that uh, we've all been been watching and, and seeing all these uh, people who've been essentially fled Afghan and, uh, Afghanistan in a rush who were uh, allied with us uh, and are being held now at U.S. military bases all over the world, uh, as close as Wisconsin, as far as away as Germany and uh, and uh, Qatar. Um, and the process of vetting those people and making sure they're not security risks uh, is is not is moving along, the, and the federal government is now in the process of, of getting ready to start to resettle some of those folks permanently in this country. So they've contacted local officials, including including local aid agencies here in Illinois, going to Pritzker's office. And the governor this week sent out a letter saying that the state is getting ready right now uh, to house 830 people uh, throughout the state. Uh, the White House used a slightly different number, 860. And that potentially over the next year or so, we, could, uh, we might see as many as 3,000, depending on how much uh, uh, federal aid we get and uh, the ability of local folks to take care of it. Um, uh, these people are uh, they're friends of ours. Uh, they, they're being tested for COVID and everything else. Uh, they're, they're being fairly fairly well vetted from uh, from my understanding and the government says that hey this is a humanitarian thing. These people helped us and we now need to help them. I'm surprised there's not more, frankly, coming this way, and I think that there may be more uh, on the horizon. But the reality is that, uh, you know, if we're going to be a welcoming city and a welcoming state, uh, we should be opening our our arms to it. Now, there's going to be blowback, obviously, but from some people who don't want uh, any more people coming into the state, uh but I believe that, uh, you know, a lot of the leaders have kind of uh, made it clear that this is a welcoming state. So to me, the number sounds a little low. Well, here is the reason how that number came to be, as was explained to me by a state official. The, the number, the, the federal government is listening to state governments, and they're not like, like giving us an assignment like prepare for X number. Uh, after doing a survey, the state found this is what the immediate capacity could be and even 
longer range, it's 30,000. So when you say, couldn't we do more, here's why we can't. Uh, as it was explained to me, that some of these uh, refugee agencies were just decimated during the Trump years. So they have to gear up again. It's starting over. You know, you just don't turn this on and off like a spigot. So they have to go uh, be hiring, training, putting together their, you know, re- reassembling their apparatus for dealing with these, uh, you know, with the refugees. And when you say that you intend some backlash, one of the other things I was told is that the state has no intention of not putting people where uh, they're not where, where they're going to be safe. So where they are resettled to a degree is based on the resources that they come. And again, don't underestimate the need for more federal support that Greg mentioned. We only get to 3,000 if there's more federal help. So uh, I think this is a very fluid situation right now. I understand that the first few dozen of uh, Afghans have arrived very recently in the area. I'm not sure exactly where they are. The other thing is there's a bit of protectiveness right away to um, you want the people to feel safe. So it's not like the the state is giving out, oh, we have 12 refugees that are at the whatever house in uh, Evanston and 10 in uh, Pilsen and 20 in Skokie and 15 in Tinley Park. They don't want to call attention to people. You know, we as reporters, I know we'll figure this out, but there is a sense that they want the people to not only feel welcomed, but feel safe. Yeah, I'll only repeat that uh, we've done this kind of thing before. Uh, anybody who's familiar with the North Side of Chicago would know that after the Vietnamese War and ended, uh, that a lot of uh, a lot of people from Vietnam ended up here, uh, and uh, by all indications, they've uh, you know they've, they've become Americans just like the rest of us, and they're contributing to society. And uh, and uh, I would hope there are, there aren't some bumps. This is the kind of thing we need to do. I agree with with Ray and Lynn. Is is there, is there a big enough support system here, Afghan-wise? Are there a, a oh, big yeah, Afghan yeah. presence? Oh, well, you don't need necessarily an Afghan presence to have a support system uh, in terms of, uh, I mean, I think we know we don't have a huge Afghan mm-hmm. community, if you think of Chicago in the way that we do with having a Polish-American community and some other uh, historical uh, ethnic groups, uh, Slovakian community. I mean, there's just so many. You know, Chicago yeah. is our own little melting pot. I think that more. I think the thing that will make more sense to think of this in terms of is: are there other uh, immigrant communities where you speak the same language or have the same religion or have uh, resources where you just have what you need? So uh, the other thing is. Some of, a lot of these people are, since they are the people who worked with Americans before, might actually be able to uh, get on their own feet faster than some other immigrant groups we had. Uh, the people that are in this special immigrant visa class who were partners with the United States military and related agencies in Afghanistan may well be able to get on their feet sooner and have their own preference where to live. I, I want to make it clear to everybody listening, uh, if no one is is telling people where they have to live. Once they have here and they're legally set up, they, you know, people could go live where they want. It's just that if you are in need of a lot of help and aid, uh, you have all these resources are easier to dispense if people, you know, live in one area. 
So uh, this will be a work in progress, especially in seeing if the federal aid comes to Illinois for this. And we'll have, uh, let Lynn have the last word there. I know you have another commitment, so we'll let you go. Thanks for hopping on. Okay, thank you. Uh, Heather, I, I want to pivot and ask you about Alderman Jim Gardner. It just keeps piling on for him, right, besides the rumors of the uh, FBI investigation, the Chicago Board of Ethics now weighing in. What are they saying? Well, the Chicago Board of Ethics found probable cause to believe that Alderman Gardner twice violated the city's ethics ordinance by, one, leaking a court record that in an attempt to smear um, a man who owns a business in his far northwest side ward but had organized a protest of something that the alderman was doing, and that he violated the ethics ordinance by seeking to retaliate against others um, who also opposed his um, policies. That was the latest, but not the biggest problem facing the alderman who was just elected in 2019. Uh, I reported with my colleague, Karen Schutz, that the FBI is investigating allegations of pay-to-play operations in his office, as well as bribery um, um, charges. So the alderman has not been charged with a crime yet. I I wish I could tell you that um, I was able to speak with him, but he has declined our invitations to appear on Chicago tonight and he has not returned my phone calls seeking a statement. But it's clear that um, even as the alderman took to the floor of the city council this week to sort of apologize for the profane and misogynistic parts of the text messages, he is still facing a significant number of inquiries about those text messages. He has called for Inspector General Joseph Ferguson to investigate the alderman as well. Uh, it is not clear whether that probe is also ongoing. Ray, is this, uh, I, I think the city council has called for a censure of him, too. I mean, it, it, I think he made a lot of people mad, <laughs> didn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think he is um, testing the forum of, of the two where he made his statements on the council floor during council meeting versus just having an open Q&A with the press corps and trying to explain himself or to have some kind of uh, moment where he would publicly uh, apologize to the people that he offended. Uh, I think there's just a lot of of kind of bad uh, moves all the way around, and he hasn't done a whole lot to dig himself out of the hole. Greg, uh, you had a story about the Chicago Police Department and a bit of a mess that they're in when it comes to record keeping. What uh, what did the IG tell you guys over at Cranes about it? Well, you know, on the surface, it sounds kind of wonky. Uh, the inspector general uh, a year ago, last June, actually, re- released a report said that record keeping in the Chicago Police Department is a mess. And and uh, so this year he took another look at it and said, gee, they didn't follow any of our recommendations and they haven't done much about it. Uh, the reason we should care about this is if you can't uh, if you can't uh, produce the records in court that you need, in some cases you won't be able to pursue a prosecution of 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 uh, of, uh, of a felon because or a criminal because you don't have the, the the paperwork there to substantiate it. In other cases, you won't be able to provide exculpatory information that might be in the files, and so you're subjecting yourself to a big uh, to a big uh, legal suit. Um, uh, and that, that, that's just 
kind of the basic it, uh, under under the uh, under terms of the consent decree that the city entered into with uh, then Illinois Attorney General Lisa Madigan a few years ago uh, to uh, reform the Chicago Police Department. The city is specifically signed on and promised that it would make sure that it had all the data in order uh, and readily available so that if there's a complaint, uh, if there's something to be investigated, you don't have to go search under uh, under paper files scattered in 14 different places. You can hit a button on the computer and have it pop up. Well, that's not the case, according to Joe Ferguson. And, uh, you know, what it tells me is that, is that, uh, is that uh, the department still doesn't have its heart in reforming its operations and and acting in the way a department should operate, and until that happens, we're we're going to be missing one of the in, vital ingredients in, in finally solving the street problem in this town. Because until citizens trust the department uh, and know that it's doing things the right way, in this case, making sure that it has background information available, uh, they're going to get their backs up, and 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 you know the gangbangers going to go crazy. It it is to me is a it sounds loggy, but it's a really telling indicator of just how Chicago police aren't there yet. I think in a basic, at a basic level, too, if you don't have things computerized, it makes it harder to track uh, patterns or to track down uh, individual criminals or to uh, try to find uh people at a moment's notice. And so there's practical uh, practical reasons here that Greg has outlined in, in uh, this whole report. And it just seems that uh, you want to try to, to modernize as much as possible. And it sounds like they're still stuck in their old ways. I would just add that I think it's especially potentially a political problem for Mayor Lightfoot, who, of course, was elected on a platform of transparency and accountability. And I think it continues to raise questions about how committed the leadership of the Chicago Police Department is to these reforms and to complying with the consent decree. Um, the police department put out its own sort of report card on how it thinks it's doing uh, complying with the consent decree. And even by its own report, it is still woefully behind schedule on meeting those requirements. This is also as there is no real movement on an effort that was championed by the inspector general to put together a database of police misconduct complaints that sought to give the Chicago public a better glimpse into what sort of complaints are being filed against officers and how often they're being held accountable for that that conduct and what sort of punishments they're being subjected to. And I think that it should have set off some alarm bells at City Hall because the mayor is going to be held accountable for her promises to reform both how City Hall operates and the police department. And as Greg said, this sounds like a lot of same old, same old. Speaking about the mayor, she's doubling down on this plan to fight uh, crime. She wants to be able to sue gang leaders. But I that plan was... Was it blocked, Heather, in in the city council meeting or just kind of put on ice or kicked to a different committee? What happened? Well, it was definitely knocked off track. And it's a little bit of inside baseball, but I think it's interesting because originally the mayor had hoped that she would be able to implement basis, get it, get a vote by the Public Safety Committee on Monday, and then have the City Council take final action on Tuesday. 
That did not happen. There was not enough support on the city council for that sort of emergency action. So instead, under the city council's normal rules of procedure, she introduced it at Tuesday's full city council meeting and then found it blocked by Alderman Rosanna Rodriguez-Sanchez, which sent it to the rules committee. Now, uh, on Friday afternoon, the rules committee is going to meet, and I expect them to send it on to the Public Safety Committee for a full hearing and a potential vote. Um, then it could return to the full city council next month. But it has given opponents of this plan a chance to really um, gather the opposition and sort of mobilize against it. And it will be a, sub a, a source of great controversy and deb debate in the coming weeks because um, a lot of progressive groups and a lot of police reform groups see this as just another either attempt to sort of uh, tamp down crime um, through sort of a public relations attempt um, that could potentially have the biggest impact, not on so-called gang leaders or kingpings, but sort of, you know, average black and Latino Chicagoans who we know are more likely to be disproportionately targeted by police and to be caught up in sort of criminal activity um, just because of their proximity to it. So it's going to be quite a fight um, over an uh, attempt that I think the mayor thought was going to be relatively smooth sailing. I want to get your uh, everyone's opinion on uh, uh, the budget uh, that is going to be coming out from Mayor Lori Lightfoot um, on Monday. Is that right, uh, Greg? Yeah, it is, and I, th I think there's th there's two questions, uh, and they kind of if you knew the answer, they kind of answer each other. One is uh, is how she going to spend this two billion dollars uh, that we're getting from uh, the latest federal. COVID relief bill known as ARP. Uh, some of it, as she's indicated, is going to be uh, is going to be to pay off uh, old debts. Uh, the city borrowed money in anticipation of getting these these federal grants, uh, but a lot of it that's, this is going to be just to use it to pay for short term needs, uh, long term investments. Uh, uh, there's going to be a lot of a big food fight about that because the progressives in the city council, in particular, have some pretty pretty bold ideas about how they want to want to spend the money on things like a guaranteeing income and uh, expanded mental health services and so forth. Um, the other question is, how does she fill the whole of the budget, which is $733 million as of as of last month? Um, uh, I expect that uh, some of it is going to be the mayor's signal she's going to refinance city debt to pay for the cost of the little police contract. That's part of it. I expect there'll probably be another big uh, TIF surplus. Uh, there'll be a little automatic property tax increase. Uh, uh, but the mayor has specific not said whether she's going to be raising other taxes and fees. She said, wait and see. Ray, your thoughts here? Well, I just <laughs> I just don't see how you dig out of a $700 million hole without some kind of bladder of, of taxes. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's what Greg has aptly, more than aptly, uh, outlined here. But the question is, you know, where it will hit. And we know, obviously, um, it'll hit everybody's wallets, but we just don't know whose wallets will be hit the hardest. Will it be some kind of uh, sales tax on services? Doubtful, but possible. It's been talked about before. But, but there's a whole platter of things, and, and uh, when she's keeping us guessing, that means that uh, there'll be a lot of discussion after she outlines it for sure. 
Yeah, I'll be watching very closely to see what the budget for the Chicago Police Department is that the mayor proposes. Um, there are a number of progressive aldermen who want to see the department's $1.7 billion 2021 budget reduced in 2022 and that money used to pay for more mental health services and more violence reduction programs. Uh, the mayor said that's not going to happen. That the police department budget, she said she expects will grow uh, year over year as they strive to increase um, the recruiting classes so they can fill several hundred vacant officer positions. And she wants to expand the city's mental health programs for officers because she says that the officers are really struggling to cope with the trauma that they experience on the job. And of course, after the shooting death of Officer Ella French while on duty, that will be uppermost in the minds of a lot of aldermen as they start what's going to be a very fraught process of approving a budget for 2022. Hmm. Well, that'll do it for the roundtable. We'll keep our eyes there on City Hall on uh, Monday and, and see what happens. My thanks uh, this week to uh, Lynn Sweet of the Sun-Times, Greg Hines of Crane Chicago Business, Heather Sharon of WTTW Chicago Tonight, and Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. Up next, Lauren Cohn. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago, and several Chicago aldermen are calling for the city to mandate proof of vaccination for people visiting public indoor settings. Joining me is 32 Ward Alderman Scott Wagesback. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Why are you supporting the effort? Well, I signed on to get a hearing on it, and I think uh, the most important thing is to just have Dr. Arwadi and her health team sit down with the public and just tell us whether this is a good idea or not. Um, I'm not 100% sold on uh, what's being proposed, but I think it's important to kind of look at all aspects of it. What's your biggest concern as we move forward in this pandemic? Well, I think the uh, the biggest concern for me is just making sure that uh, businesses have the option. You know, if they um, if they have strict requirements, um, that's great for either masks or vaccinations. We we do see some businesses doing it, but where we might not have it or we don't have government offices doing it, that we take a little bit um, more effort to make sure that people either have the proof of vaccine or you know, that we're really pushing masking requirements to kind of knock out this thing once and for all. We do have mask mandates in the city and across the state, but there are plenty of businesses I've been in them where they're still ignoring those, even in, in businesses like health clubs or, you know, stores or companies where they're requiring people to be vaccinated. You walk in and you see a lot of people not obeying by the mask mandates. How do you get people to wear them if these businesses won't enforce rules set by the city and the state? Well, you know, one way is a mandate, but again, uh, like you said, even with the mandate, people are ignoring it. I think that we have to continue to keep pressure on uh, the PR campaign to to make sure that people know the healthcare risk of this, and it, it's this is a very difficult thing. I think we we see a lot of people second guessing and you know getting sick and really looking back and saying, I wish I would have worn a mask. I wish I would have got the vaccine, and that is really doing a lot damage to the healthcare system. So I think we have to look at it from the economics as well and just tell people, um, you know, we, we need to take these steps because of uh, not only the economics, but the health of everyone involved. So it, it's a difficult task.
Do you agree with some uh, public officials who have come out and said that this is a pandemic of the unvaccinated? Um, Not entirely, because what we are seeing is some people with the vaccine uh, end up with the either the variants that are out there or it's breaking through those. So every human being has, uh, you know, a different body and a different reaction to it. So I think um, that's not 100 percent true, but I think it's important to know that the vast majority of people getting the vaccine are okay. It's just again, it's um, it's it's a. This is something that none of us have really seen before. I mean, I spent a couple of years working in hospitals in Africa. I went through and, and saw different types of viruses. And uh, I think, you know, we, we didn't see this coming at a global level like this. But um, I think it's important to make sure that everybody takes every effort they can to, to minimize it and mitigate it. Alderman Scott Wagusback, thank you so much for joining me. And I'm Lauren Cohn for Connected to Chicago. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.